55. You'll see it there at the bottom right of page 55, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, 
and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. As we continue on in our series of sermons in the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book in our Bible. Let me just get you caught up in case you haven't been here uh, for some of the previous messages. So uh, the people of Israel had been living in Egypt for some 430 years. When the book of Exodus opens, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, was threatened by the explosive population growth amongst the, the Israelites, amongst the Hebrew people. And so he ordered that all of their baby boys be thrown into the river. Uh, it says that he began to 
force them to work ruthlessly as slaves. We read in Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance from slavery. The Lord heard their cries, and he sent Moses to deliver them. Uh, Pharaoh wasn't too keen on the idea of the Israelites uh, taking off, uh, and so the Lord had to send not one, not two, but ten plagues on the land of Egypt. Uh, finally, after the tenth plague, the, the death of the Egyptians' firstborn children, Pharaoh let the Israelites go. And so now we see them on the way out of Egypt, going to the land that God had promised to them. So last week we read in Exodus chapter 12 this summary in verse 37. It says, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. So when our passage for this morning opens, that's where we are. The people of Israel have left en masse from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they're heading to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's descendants. And so what I want to do, hopefully, is uh, put up a map on the screen here so you can get a sense of where we are. Look at that. You guys are the best back there. Uh, and I want you to see that there is a direct route from where the Israelites were in Egypt to where they're heading. So if you look at the map, uh, Egypt is over here. The land of Canaan is in what would be the upper right-hand uh, portion of the map for you. And so there's a pretty clear line, a pretty clear path, a way to go uh, from Egypt to Canaan, right? You just head northeast uh, along the Mediterranean Sea there. But as we're told in our passage for this morning in chapter 13, verse 17, that route that went from Egypt along the Mediterranean, up the northeast, directly to Canaan, was the way of the Philistines. It says that in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. The Philistines were a formidable ancient Near Eastern nation. And so there's a certainty that some 600,000 Israelite men marching through their land would result in war. So in chapter 13, verse 18. We're told that Israel went out of Egypt equipped for battle. Uh, the language there uh, seems to indicate less that they were well-armed, though we will see they did have some weapons. Uh, it seems to indicate more the way they marched out of Egypt. They were something in like, in like columns, like an army would form. Uh, there, there's no doubt that, that battles are coming as they go to Canaan. So in chapter 17, we're going to see Israel fight against the Amalekites. The book of Joshua is going to chronicle Israel fighting all sorts of different nations. But the Lord knows that the people of Israel right now cannot handle war, right? The, the cement is still wet on their redemption from slavery. And so the Lord seems to know that the possibility of war would be enough to send them scurrying back to the comforts of slavery. And so the Lord decides to take them in a different way, we're told. It's really amazingly kind of him. He knows his people. He knows their weakness. He knows what they can and cannot bear. And so here he, he, he accounts uh, for their weakness and the weakness of their faith. And he takes them a different route. So we see in verse 18 of chapter 13, the Lord leads them by way of the wilderness, by way of the Red Sea, which you see in the sort of middle bottom portion of the map. So you, you can see there on the map that, that this route takes them not northeast, but southeast, right? This would be about as efficient as driving from D.C. to Chicago by way of Atlanta, right? 
There in verse 20 of chapter 13, we're told that they camped at, at Etham on the edge of the wilderness in the desert, and that's really where this takes place. We're not sure exactly where Israel crossed over the Red Sea. It does seem most likely that it was somewhere up in the north where you can see the sea is a bit uh, more narrow, but really a lot of the, the names and places that are mentioned in our passage are, are foreign to us. We just simply don't know uh, where these things are. So you can go ahead and take the map down. Thank you, guys. I just want to give you a sense of where we are when this passage happens. So Israel has left Egypt. They've gone southeast. They're, they're camped somewhere around the northern part of the Red Sea. And there are two interesting things that our text notes about their journey. So if you look there in chapter 13, in verse 19, we're told that they brought the bones of Joseph with them. If you remember back to the book of Genesis, when we were studying that some months ago, uh, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had a son named Joseph, and Joseph was sold by his brothers into Egypt, into slavery. Joseph eventually rose to a position of power and prominence in Egypt, and the whole family wound up living there and prospering during a famine. That's how the people of Israel came to live in the land of Egypt in the first place. That's, that's the setting for when the book of Exodus opens. But in Genesis 49, we saw Jacob, an old man, the patriarch, we saw that he died in Egypt. And at that point, we saw the whole clan, all the people of Israel, took a massive road trip back to Canaan at his request. The idea is that Jacob wanted his body to be returned to the land that God had promised to Abraham. Right? It was a sign that the future of Israel was, was not here in Egypt, it was in Canaan. But then at the very end of the book of Genesis, in the very last paragraph of the book of Genesis, when Joseph lay dying, he gave the family instructions, not to, not to take my bones to Canaan right now, like they had with his father Jacob, but he said, when you all leave here, right, when the Israelites and your people, when we leave Egypt, don't forget me, bring my bones with you. So for more than 400 years, the grave of Joseph was a reminder to the people of Israel who were living in slavery in Egypt that we're not staying here. This is not a permanent residence. And so now, as they finally have experienced God's redemption and deliverance, as they're on their way out of town, we read in chapter 13, verse 19, that Moses remembered to, to take Joseph's bones with them, right? The author here, most likely Moses, is the author of Exodus. He's reminding his reader that none of this is random. That, that everything that has happened has been according to God's plan. That he's the one who's been guiding these events all along. Uh, the second thing to notice about this journey here in chapter 13 is that the Lord was present with his people in a visible way. We read there in verse 21 that the Lord went before them. During the day, he was present with them as a pillar of cloud. During the night, we read, he was present in a pillar of fire that would light their way. So there's some debate among scholars about whether this was one pillar that changed its appearance or whether it was two different pillars. So I'm going to speak about it as one pillar. You can debate it over lunch if you'd like. But in any event, this pillar of cloud and fire allowed them, as we read there at the end of verse 21, to travel both by day and by night. And as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see that both this image of cloud and fire are ways that, that God manifests himself among his people. 
So already in the book of Exodus, we've seen God appear to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Uh, Many centuries later, when the glory of the Lord comes to the temple, it, it comes with a thick cloud that prevents anyone from coming near. And so what's clear here in this pillar of cloud and fire is that the Lord is present with his people, that he's there to guide them and to protect them. In chapter 14, verse 19, we'll see that the angel of God has also been going ahead of the people. And and at one point, both he and the pillar of cloud move to the rear of the formation to separate Israel from the threat of the Egyptian armies. So we saw this angel of God, or the the word could mean messenger of God, back in Exodus chapter 3, right, when he appears to Moses in a bush that burns but is not consumed. There, as in other places in the Old Testament, this angel of God acts and speaks in such a way that he's, he's closely identified with God's presence himself. And I think this is an important thing for us to, to have in place. For here, we see a very early indication of God's desire to be visibly and inseparably present with his people. So remember back in Exodus chapter 6, where the Lord instructed Moses to say this, He said, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So that's what we've seen in the plagues. But that's not all. God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God redeemed them from slavery with mighty acts. And now we see him keeping the the second part of that promise, that he will take Israel to be his people and that they shall know that he is the Lord, their God. Now the Lord simply could have said that and it would have been true, but in his great love, he, he condescends to show people as well. Right, that's the point of the pillar of cloud and fire. It's a visible picture of an invisible reality. It's a visible picture that the Lord is always with them to bless them and guide them and protect them. And Christian, I have good news for you this morning. God is present with you in an even greater way than he was present with the people of Israel. As awesome as it must have been to see the pillar of cloud and fire, we have an even greater experience of God's presence because God's son took on flesh and walked among us as one of us. And after he died for our sins and was raised from the dead in glory, he ascended into heaven from where he sent us his spirit. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus promises that he will never leave us, that he will always be with us even to the end of this age. And, and Jesus has never left us. He is always with us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us. God is present with us, not externally in a cloud, but in our hearts, renewing our minds, guiding us and protecting us. Christian, I have even better news, if it's possible. Because Jesus has promised to come back. 
and to make all things new. And so your future, if you are in Christ, is to spend eternity in the presence of God. Seeing him, not in amorphous clouds and flames, but seeing him, the Bible tells us, face to face, in the most complete and full way that any human being can see him. And so in the meantime, while we wait for that day, God has given us ways of seeing this reality in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. We have visible reminders of something that's easily forgotten, that the Lord has redeemed us, has made us his people, and is present with us now, that he is our God and we are his people. As we look into chapter 14, we see a miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. We see that the Israelites walk through the Red Sea on dry land, and and Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. Here at the beginning of chapter 14, the Lord tells Moses to take yet another diversion. So again, there's a list of towns there that Andrew read for us uh, confidently and well. So if you ever find yourself reading ancient Hebrew names, just read them confidently. We don't really know where these places are, so there's a lot of arguing uh, amongst archaeologists and scholars, enough to convince me that no one really knows for sure. Uh, but we, they are somewhere camping around the Red Sea, and there in verse 2, Moses is told to turn back. So, so they're heading out. The Lord tells them in verse 2, uh, he says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharoth. So Wherever these places were, on the face of it, this is not a good strategy, right? The, the people are well on their way to freedom. Uh, they, they have a head start on Pharaoh and his, his armies. Now the Lord tells them, turn back, double back, and camp, like stop. Uh, up until this point, the, the pillar of fire had enabled them to go even in the, in the darkness, in the night, but, but now the Lord says, go back and stop along the Red Sea, Right? That's, that's not sound military strategy. They're, they're, they're trapping themselves. They're, they're pinned in now. But the text tells us that's exactly the Lord's point. There in verse 3, that's exactly what the Lord wants Pharaoh to think. The Lord knew there in verse 3, he says that Pharaoh would see Israel. And they would be apparently floundering. They would be acting as if they were lost and clueless. And Pharaoh's pride would rise, we read there in verse 3. See, this is a, this is a ruse. This is a divine rope-a-dope, right? There in verse 4, we see the Lord would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would forget the lesson of the 10th plague, so that Pharaoh would pursue Israel in an effort to return them to bondage. And in a way that is obvious to those of us who know what comes next but was completely unclear to Moses at this time, God would get glory over Pharaoh and his army. And all Egypt would know, as we read there at the end of verse 4, that he is the Lord. So the Israelites, they they double back. They encamp by the Red Sea. And this is a trap for Pharaoh. God wants Pharaoh to fall into this trap, and that's exactly what happens. There in verse 5, we we realize that Pharaoh, or we read that Pharaoh finds out that the Israelites have fled, and immediately he sets out after them. It seems that Pharaoh maybe had it in his mind that the Israelites were only going on a three-day journey 
that had been discussed kind of earlier in negotiations with Moses. And so now he realizes, it seems, that they're not coming back at all. And, and so he and the other people of Egypt decide that they've made a mistake and that they are going to go after Israel. He's losing a huge force of free labor. And so, and so now Israel is, is target number one. Egypt is going out after him. Pharaoh forgets how he had been humbled by the Lord. He forgets the way that he had defiantly set himself up against God. Remember, he, he declared early on in the book of Exodus, I don't know who Yahweh is, and I'm not going to listen. The Pharaoh seems to have forgotten how Yahweh humiliated him, how he brought Pharaoh low, how the Lord's people had walked out of Egypt like conquerors. You can tell there in verse 5, he forgets because he asks himself, what am I doing? Why have I let these people go? And now all he can think about is revenge. He wants to go and restore his glory. He wants to go and capture the Israelites. He wants to lead them back into slavery triumphantly, showing them who the boss really is. So there in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 14, he heads out with his best troops, with all the chariots of Egypt, to go after this ragtag bunch of slaves. Now chariots might not sound like much to us, but that was state-of-the-art in those days. This was like the U.S. military pulling up with a mass of tanks and, and fighter jets. Right? There's, this is not a fair fight here. The Israelites are completely overmatched. Uh, there in verse 9 of chapter 14, the Egyptians finally overtake Israel uh, where they are set up with their backs at the sea. And so you have this, this almost cinematic moment. The tension couldn't be any higher. Pharaoh and all the forces of the most powerful nation anyone knew about versus a bunch of ragtag slaves. Right? There's nowhere to go. There is nowhere to run. So stop for a second and think about how you would respond if you were in the shoes of the Israelites on those days. Right, on one hand, the situation is terrifying. Right, what hope do they have against the might of Egypt? But on the other hand, they had seen a lot of evidence that the Lord could handle Pharaoh pretty well. So how would you respond if you were in their shoes? If you're not sure, just, just look at how you react in your own life when things seem overwhelming. It's not like you don't have plenty of evidence of the Lord's care for you. And my guess is that you would have responded to that crisis pretty much like you respond to crises in your life now. There in verse 10, we read how Israel reacted. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they see Pharaoh drawing near their old slave master, the guy who always seems like he gets his way in the end at their expense. And he's come to put an end to their escape. And it says that they fear greatly and they cry out to the Lord. And that might seem noble, right? That's what you should do when you're overwhelmed. Cry out to the Lord. But, but this isn't the same outcry that we saw back in Exodus 2, where they cried to God for deliverance. No, this is a, this is a cry of panic, we know that's the case because of what we see in verses 11 and 12. You see there, they turn on Moses. It says in verse 11, They said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's like their faith and their trust in the Lord just crumples at the first test. Right? You might want to get used to this idea. It's going to be a theme that gets repeated throughout the book of Exodus. You see here that they attack Moses with biting questions. They ask, did we come out here because there weren't enough places to bury us in Egypt? There's a bit of sarcasm there. Egypt was known for its its, uh, tombs, right? Think about the pyramids, right? It's elaborate places to bury people. It was the place that had places to bury people. And so they're like, were there not enough places to bury us there? Second, they ask, what have you done bringing us out here? Third, they said, didn't we tell you that we wanted to be left alone so we could serve the Egyptians? And if you've been reading this whole book, you're like, really? Your memory is that short? That you're already longing for the comfort of slavery? Right? That is some ingratitude. That is real audacity. There in verse 15, we see the Lord rebukes Moses as the representative of the people, saying, why are you crying to me? Tell them to move forward. What do you mean, move forward? We're we're pinned between an army and an ocean. You see where the disconnect for Israel was. They assumed here in their questioning that the Lord's priority ought to be their ease and comfort. Right? They're, they're assuming that if they have to deal with something that's frightening or uncertain or inconvenient, that must be evidence that the Lord doesn't care or can't help. But the Lord's already told them what he's after here. Remember there in verse 4, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. That's what the Lord's doing here. The Israelites assume that God is in it for their pleasure and comfort And so now things look less than pleasant, less than safe. They begin to grumble and complain. Right? There in verse 14, or in chapter 14, in verses 17 to 18, we read this same idea repeated. In verse 4, he tells them, I will get glory over Pharaoh. Then in chapter 14, verses 17 to 18, we read this. He says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, that is, into the sea, And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So friends, does God want to deliver Israel from slavery? Yes. Does he want to give them peace and prosperity in the land of Canaan? Yes. Does he want them to live in the land listening to him and enjoying his presence? Yes. Does that mean that his goal is to make sure they never have to trust him or walk through difficult circumstances on the way? Not at all. Instead, the Lord's redemption of the Israelites is aimed at his glory, spreading the knowledge of his lordship. And friends, that's why God has saved us as well. We have to be on guard against the same tendency that the Israelites had because it's easy to trust the Lord and praise his name when things are going well. But you'll find out what your heart really believes when you're backed up to the Red Sea and you hear chariot wheels in the distance. 
Christian, God promises to be with you and to protect you and to work out everything for your ultimate good and to bring you to glory. But he doesn't promise you a life free from problems and pain and trouble. Our good and God's glory is not always the same thing as what is comfortable for us. In fact, comfortable, comfortable people don't often give glory to God. Rich people, successful people, powerful people, healthy people, they don't always need God. Rather, it's the poor in spirit, the meek, the persecuted, the suffering. Those are the ones who know they need help. And so the Lord sometimes allows his people to suffer, sometimes allows his people to struggle so that they will rely on him and give him the glory. See, friends, it's possible to reject what's known as the prosperity gospel, this idea that God just wants you to be happy and healthy and rich all the time. It's possible for us as a church and as individuals to reject that in theory, all the while embracing it in our practice. So Carl Truman, a professor at Grove City College, put it this way. He says, what always challenges me about prosperity doctrine is that many of us who repudiate it in theory still practice it in reality. Every time we suffer a minor setback and are tempted to curse God in our hearts, that's practical prosperity doctrine. Every time we measure our success by the size of our churches, we make ourselves vulnerable to accusations that we are too committed to a form of the prosperity doctrine, more subtle and all the more deadly precisely because of that subtlety. We are what we are in Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And in his final hours, Christ was friendless, an embarrassment to his disciples, with the fair-weather followers and even his closest friends having long since abandoned him. And then, to cap it all, he was crucified. We shouldn't be complacent about the prosperity doctrine. It's not just a problem for them. It's a problem for us, too. So, friend, ask yourself how you respond when things go off the plan. That's really the heart of Israel's panic here. They thought they understood how this was going to go, and it didn't involve yet another showdown with Pharaoh. When your life goes in a way that you didn't anticipate, or maybe a way that you don't desire, do you grumble? Do you doubt? Do you even long for a previous way of life? Look at the way that Moses responds to their lack of faith there in verses 13 to 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Friends, just stop for a second and think about that. What an extraordinary command. Here are the Israelites, perhaps at the most terrifying moment of their lives, freaking out, completely lacking trust in God. And what is it that God says to them through Moses? What is it that they need to hear? Be still. Do nothing. Be silent. God demands that they stand there. And do nothing. Friends, isn't that glorious? 
For 430 years, they have served the whim and the command of a cruel master. Now they've been delivered. They have a new master. And what is his command? Do nothing. I will protect you. Moses tells them not to fear. They can have complete confidence in the Lord's care and provision. Right? The Puritans used to say, fear God and you have nothing else to fear. Moses tells them to stand firm right where they are. Stand there, he says, not to fight, not to defend yourself, not to do anything, but simply watch what the Lord is about to do. Moses says, just look and see what your God will do. Can you see Israel is learning what God's salvation is like? There in verse 13, we're, we're reminded, right? Salvation is of the Lord. It's not a matter of what we do. It's not about what we contribute, but rather it's about what the Lord himself will do. In our salvation, we stand still. We are silent. God is the one who delivers. Of course, this lesson comes into its clearest focus many centuries later at the cross of Christ. That is the ultimate picture of unilateral grace, a salvation accomplished by God without any help from us. There at the cross, a guilty world stood in need of salvation. Guilty sinners stood in slavery to sin and death. The Bible says we are dead in our sins. You are about as capable of delivering yourself, saving yourself as a dead man is from, from getting up and living. And so Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, came to die on the cross to take our punishment, to vanquish the power of sin and death through his resurrection. And so what do we contribute to that? Nothing. Our job is to stand and watch. Friends, this is the difference between the Christian faith and every other major world religion. Every other religion tells you what you need to do in order to be pleasing with God. Right? Even, even non-religious people right, will come to you with a whole list, a code of things, commands that you must obey if you're going to be right. Christianity tells you that you can do nothing. It's not a religion of do, but of done. It's not what you do, but what God has done for you. That's what Israel is learning here on the, the shore of the Red Sea. Salvation is of the Lord. And look how he saves them. There in verse 16, the Lord says to Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Because that's exactly what happens. In verses 21 to 22, we see Moses holds out his staff. Wind comes and divides the waters and makes dry land. There in verse 29, we, we read that as they walk through on dry land, there's a wall of water on each side of them. But God didn't just make an escape route available to Israel and then say, good luck with it. No, there in verses 19 and 20, the angel of God that had been traveling with them and the pillar of cloud moved from the front of their ranks and repositioned themselves behind Israel between the Egyptians and the people of God. The idea is that the Egyptians should be prevented 
from chasing Israel at first. When they do pursue there in verse 23, the Lord sees them at daybreak there in verse 24 and throws them into a panic. He clogs their wheels so that they're stuck in the middle of these walls of water. And it's at this point, finally at this point, that the Egyptians realize they've made a terrible mistake, that they've messed with the wrong God. It's incredible there. They, they say that, that Yahweh, the Lord, there at the end of verse 25, let us flee from before Israel. Why? Because Israel's so tough and scary? Because Israel's got it figured out? Because Israel knows what it's doing? No, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. We've messed with the wrong God. Suddenly they realize that they're the ones with the chariots, but this is actually not a fair fight. Of course, it's too late. The Lord has already said what's going to happen. And so hard-hearted Pharaoh and his murderous legions are all doomed. There in verse 27, Moses stretches out his hand yet again with the people of Israel safely out of the water. The waters return to their place. In verse 28, we read, that the defeat of Egypt was complete. It says the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Okay, so what's the takeaway for us then? How, how are we to respond? However many centuries later, looking back on these events, well, I think we see there at the end of the chapter in verses 30 to 31 in the response of the Israelites. It says there, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people of Israel got to the other side. They looked back. And they saw all of their enemies washed up, face down, dead on the beach. The Lord had done it, just as he had said. The result there was that they feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses, the one through whom the Lord spoke. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is no less dramatic. It is no less complete. It is no less a work of God than what happened at the Red Sea. The enemies of our souls presented a seemingly insurmountable threat. Our sin condemned us to death. The, the evil one, the devil, claimed us as his own. But God, in his love, stood between us and all that would destroy us. He placed himself between us and the danger to our souls. He cast his own beloved son into the waters of judgment at the cross so that you and I might walk through on dry land. And in so doing, God destroyed all that might harm us. And so, brothers and sisters, we can be sure that the Lord will always protect us. We can be sure that he fights for us every bit as much as he fought for Israel. We see there in verses 14 and verse 25. Brothers and sisters, we can be sure that he will ultimately destroy anything that threatens to undo us. Now listen, that doesn't mean that nothing bad can ever happen to us. Right? The Lord 
in his sovereign providence, sometimes allows terrible things to happen to his people. Right? As individuals, we may experience real suffering and difficulty. Think about it. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. But think about how many Israelites died in Egypt over that 430 years, never having experienced in their life God's salvation and deliverance. Right? Bad things happen to God's people. Christians get cancer, as far as I can tell, at the exact same rate as people who aren't Christians. Christians sometimes lose children. Christians are sometimes martyred for their faith. But we know that God always protects his people. We lay hold of that promise not so much in the circumstances of our daily lives, though the Lord is very kind and often blesses us and protects us far beyond what we deserve. But God's promise of protection and deliverance comes to us as we are part of his people. God is committed to seeing that his people make it safely home. We may experience real difficulty. We may be hurt. We may be genuinely wounded. We may even be killed here in this life. But God has promised that if we are part of his people, we will make it to glory. We will make it to that final promised land. That's the protection that God promises to you and me. Jesus spoke about this in John chapter 10. This is where we'll conclude this morning. He says, I give them eternal life. He's speaking about his sheep, his people. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Christian, that's the promise that we cling to, that God's salvation, his deliverance, his protection can never fail. He'll never fail to save us. It's that salvation that we come to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Here in the bread and in the cup, we have a visible reminder that the Lord has done everything needed to make sure that we make it safely to the promised land. That God has fought our battle for us. That he has conquered. He has, he has gotten victory over our enemies. That God went to this length to purchase our freedom. And so no enemy, internal or external, can ultimately waylay us. And we can never be made to return to captivity. Now before we come to the table, it's appropriate that we take a moment to examine our lives. That's what Paul tells the church at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of our salvation in the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the supper is for all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ and who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized and who are connected to a church that believes in the gospel through membership. The Lord's invitation to come to his table is a gracious one. It's not extended to you on the basis of anything you've done, but it's extended to you on the basis of what Jesus did for you. So to be clear, even as we take time to examine ourselves now before we come to the table, this is not a performance review. We're not here to look at our week 
and see how well we did and see what feelings of guilt and unworthiness we might have and then decide whether we're good enough to come to the Lord's table. Now, this is a meal for sinners who have been saved by grace. But with that said, the Lord's Supper is also not something that we should take lightly. So if you know yourself not to be a Christian, then this meal isn't for you yet. So instead of coming forward to take the bread and to take the cup, use this time to think about your need for salvation, your need for deliverance. We would love nothing more than for you to put your trust in Jesus so that we could welcome you to the table of the Lord at some point in the near future. Or if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if your life is marked by a sin that you have no intention of turning from, or if you insist on holding on to bitterness against a brother or sister in Christ, then before you come to the table, do what Christians do and repent. Turn from your sin Confess it to the Lord, turn your back on it, and then come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for repentant sinners. So we'll take a moment now to confess our sins to the Lord. We'll have a moment of silent reflection and confession, and then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer, confessing our sins. Let's pray.